I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Sakshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hi, I'm Sarthak, and I welcome you to one more episode of All Things Policy. In this episode, we are going to talk about democracy. There is a context to today's discussion. In recent times, there have been apprehensions about democratic systems. Different studies reflect this trend. The Freedom House reports point towards a continuous retreat of democracy world over for the last 14 years. Surveys conducted by Pew Research also point to the same trend. In this episode, we'll look at some factors which can increase trust in democracy and democratic institutions. To discuss this, I have with me my colleague Apoorv. Apoorv manages Takshila's flagship PGP program in public policy. Hi Apoorv, welcome to All Things Policy. Hey, thanks, Arthur. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. So before we dive into the factors which impact democracy, I think we should discuss the impacts of democracy on any society. So are there any studies, empirical evidences which point towards some of the impacts of democracy on any society? All right, Sartan. So there are, I would say that I would categorize uh, the this kind of literature into two broad categories. One category is about democracy and its positive impacts on overall economic growth or GDP growth, income, prosperity, and so on and so forth. But then there is a, a recent set of literature and this set of literature has emerged in the past six to seven years, I would believe, uh, right? Uh, it talks about the twilight of democracy or the backsliding of democracy, a term that has been of use in these literature. So this, the latter literature talks about the backsliding of democracy the past seven or eight years, uh, which is what you were talking about in your introductory note. While the former uh, set of literature, mostly academic literature, uh, and one of and most of them are actually classic pieces of, of economic development, economics and, and political science. They talk about political implications of democracy how democratic institutions impact economic growth, prosperity, uh, and also shaping or reshaping a society. Uh, so let me sort of, uh, you know, give you some examples of, of this kind of literature. And, you know, let me begin by talking about the classic literature, a classic book of Darren Aswoglu and Robinson, A Wild Asian State. And their central argument is uh, that the democratic institutions lead to inclusive institutions that can further lead to economic growth, prosperity, uh, and and development. And they compare inclusive institutions with extractive institutions, which are sort of, you know, which hamper progress. Then the recently, uh, as Moglu and Robinson have written a narrow corridor about which we have, you know, we, we, we recorded an episode a few months ago. So Taren, so Nav Corridor also talks about, you know, few conditions uh, that can lead to good and robust democracy, which can also lead to liberty and prosperity. And, you know, the recent paper by S. with others, I mean, which is the theme of our podcast, uh, the title of this uh, paper is Successful Democracies Breed Their Own Support. I mean, the main argument of this paper is that uh, 
the amount of time that a society or a country spends within her as a democratic sort of a country or within democratic principles, it is correlated to the support of the democracies, which is also known as, you know, democratic gap. And, and there are other studies also, Santa. so for example, in Last year, Lancet published a study, you know, at the peak of, of pandemic, which spoke uh, about you know, the central argument by the authors were was that democratic countries are able to focus more on universal health coverage. There is an increase in public health spending, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, so this is the kind of literature that has, you know, uh, emerged in the past few years. And, uh, you know, and this is what our theme of this podcast is. Yeah, so this is something that I think I should have uh, pointed out in the beginning. So when we are talking about democracy, we are talking about liberal democracies. We're not talking about uh, democracy, just like a procedural democracy. We're not talking about brute majority. We're talking about those kind of democratic setups, which have rule of law. So basically, we're talking about republics. That's right, Sartak. So uh, good clarification, because we are, we are not talking about procedural democracy. We are talking about substantive democracy. And the Lancet study, which I quote, is of uh, you know is is about substantive democracy because they argue that uh, within a democratic uh, setup, uh, the citizens would hold the public representatives accountable for delivering uh, public health services, right? And this is very much different uh, from casting your votes after every five years. Yeah, exactly. So in the, in the recent paper by Esmoglu. Successful democracies breed their own support. So they have identified certain factors which can lead to increase in support for democracy and democratic institutions. And the study revolves around two things. One is exposure to democracy. Second is experience of successful democracy. Now, what they are saying is, the first hypothesis that they are trying to study is, if there are people who are exposed to democracies, then their support for democracy increases. So if people are not exposed to democracy, uh, again, they might be supporting authoritarian rule, they might be supporting our, uh, army rule. Now, this is interesting because, just come to think of it, there are different setups right now. There are certain political regimes which are democratic, there are certain political regimes which are authoritarian. So if you are in an authoritarian regime, then your support or the, tra- the, the transition from authoritarian regime to a democratic regime might be more difficult. So how do they understand these things? How do they conduct these studies? So what they have done is they have tried to study the experience of immigrants. Right? There, have, there might be some people who would have been born and brought up in authoritarian regimes and over a period of time, they might have moved towards democratic setups. And then how is uh, their experience changing? So that way they have tried to understand it. And again, they have looked at different numbers and they're saying that if you are, if you are exposed to 20 years of democracy, then your preference for a democratic regime increases by almost 8%. That's almost, this gap is almost equal to the gap that people have preference for democracy in Hong Kong and people have preference for democracy in mainland China. That's right, Satak. And, uh, you know, this study, uh, this paper is, is actually very interesting because all the, uh, you know, older studies on, uh, you know, that revolves around democracy and economic growth. And, and you know, if I... If I may recall, I think Lipsid, the classic uh, paper by Lipsid actually talks about this modernization theory, right? That, you know, democracy will sort of survive or sustain at higher uh, income levels. And, uh, you know, and, and by the way, India is an outlier on that front, uh, as, as I 
by uh, Arvind Subramaniam in his paper on precocious democracy. Uh, this paper is uh, this paper by Ajay Mogu is is very interesting because they argue that it's not only the income levels, but the exposure of democracy, as highlighted by you, is what matters for the support of democracy. And you know there are few uh, advantages that they have quoted. They have argued that it is these three or four broad advantages that give incentives to citizens to provide their support to a democratic institution. And these four factors are higher economic growth, you know, peace, political stability, and you know, an efficient sort of public public service delivery mechanism. Yeah, so so what they are saying is economic growth, if it is there. So in that case, people's support for democracy will increase, people's trust in democratic institutions will increase. Right. So it's not just exposure. Experience in a democracy is also equally important. Right. So if you are in a democratic setup and there is economic growth which is being ensured by the democratic setup, then people's trust might increase, but it's not the only factor. Apart from economic growth, there are some other factors as well. For example, peace and political stability. So you might be in a democratic setup, but if you don't have enough peace, you do not have enough political stability, then again, trust in democracy might go down. And it can lead to a situation where people might along for having authoritarian leaders, people might uh, want to have uh, leaders who do not really care about parliament or who do not really care about how election processes are being conducted. Or uh, they might also want to have or they might want to be governed under experts who might not have any form of legitimacy or who who might not have been elected by some legitimate processes. So, and they they look at different countries and they find out that there are some countries where which has had long history of political instability. And here again, the trust in democratic institutions is quite low. They give give, give the example of Philippines. And the third point that you pointed out that uh, high public expenditure is also important. Now, what they are saying is, in a democracy, if the quality and quantity of services, public services are good, people's trust in the setup increases. But again, how do you measure, quantify the quality and the quantity of public services? For that, what they're doing is they're using a proxy of public expenditure. So if the public expenditure is quite high, then people might trust these institutions, people might trust the political institutions more. Right, Satak. And, uh, you know, a broad sort of a takeaway from this particular argument is somewhat similar to what the authors of Twilight of Democracy in the past seven or eight years of people who have started writing about the backsliding of democratic principles. Uh, I think their argument is also somewhat similar because this is what they argue. That post-2008 financial crisis, the global economy has not sort of, sort of bounced back to its pre financial crisis sort of, you know, in our conditions. And that is why there is a massive backlash because there are lack of opportunities, then there is an elite capture, then there is also a cultural backlash. And, you know, these three, four sort of, you know, these three, four ingredients make it a, a very good sort of a cocktail for a populist or a majoritarian food uh, that has prevailed uh, across the world and which is what, you know, of Freedom Survey or VDM report also also talk about. So I think their argument is also very much similar to the argument. Ironically, I would say because this is about the success of democracy, but uh, ironically, their argument is very much similar to what other authors uh, have been, you know, like Larry Tamit and others have been arguing for the past few years. Yeah, 
But I think the kind of sample set and the kind of quantitative research that is there in the paper would have been slightly different, I guess. I mean, that this level of details might not have been there in the previous studies, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, so another interesting aspect here is, I mean, they have talked about the, the factors which can uh, improve uh, trust in uh, a democracy, right? How experience of a successful democracy leads to greater support for democracy. And all the three factors are economic growth, political and uh, political stability and peace and high public expenditure. Now, again, I find that there is some form of uh, overlap between these factors, right? There is some form of linkage. Now, for example, if you are, uh, if you have economic growth, then only maybe you can go for high public expenditure. If you have economic growth, then only maybe you can ensure peace and political stability. Without economic growth, providing for these things might be difficult. Just think of it, right? If the economic growth is not there, then you might not be able to create institutions or you might, your institutions might not be staffed properly to ensure peace and political stability. If you are having economic growth, then again, the conflicts can be taken care of. Similarly, if you have high economic growth, then only you have a scope for providing different kind of uh, public services. The quality of services can also improve. And in fact, uh, sometimes it might you might feel people might feel that high. We are talking about high public expenditure. When you talk about high public expenditure, people might have these apprehensions that uh, we are being socialist. The government is doing everything. But contrary to this, what evidences we have is if the per capita incomes are high, if the GDP is high, uh, the proportion of public expenditure is quite high. Countries like US, Sweden, they're the public expenditure proportion of its GDP is quite high. In US, the public expenditure is almost 38% of its GDP. In Sweden, it is almost 49% of its GDP. While in India, it is quite low. It's around 27%. So countries which have high GDP, high GDP per capita, they also tend to have high public expenditure. So again, you need to have high economic growth to ensure high public expenditure. So there is some form of an overlap here. That's right, South. And as you were talking about this theme, I couldn't stop but but recall uh, some of the reviews and the comments that came by that came by uh, from from some of the scholars and reviewers uh, when Die Nation Speed was uh, launched a few years ago. Uh, and they said that you know this is a chicken and egg situation. That good institutions, good economic growth, or good economic growth lead to good institutions. So again, there is a massive overlap between this theme and, you know, and the, there are massive overlaps in the themes that, you know, Espunku and others have discussed in the recent paper, as you said. Yeah, this is interesting. Now, another uh, dimension that uh, we uh, need to look at is what are the implications for India, right? All these uh, points that we have, all these factors uh, can lead to strengthening of democracy. And how does India perform along these lines and what could be its implications on the democratic setup of India? So if you look at all these uh, factors, right, economic growth, for example. Now, economic, there was an, the economy actually contracted last year during the time of the pandemic. And even now, even, even though the economy has uh, grown, but it is not yet at the pre-pandemic levels. And even before the pandemic, right, so the economy had been, the economic growth rates had been decreasing. So again, if the economic growth rates are not increasing, if, if the economy is not growing at a good pace, then there are chances that people might start questioning the present setup. People might start questioning the democratic institutions. There might be preference for authoritarian regimes. So this is something that we need to be worried about. Second thing is when it comes to peace and political stability, right? Again, there have been different kinds of challenges in the Indian context. There have been different kinds of conflicts, not necessarily armed conflicts, but different kinds of other conflicts, right? Communal conflicts, other kind of issues have been there. So if peace and political stability 
gets hampered right again questions will be raised about the democratic setup and we have seen different kinds of conflicts emerging and the third thing is uh, public expenditure now in the last couple of years our public finance situation has not been really good and since the economy is not doing well it does not provide sufficient bandwidth for the governments to be spending on public expenditure public services right so this again can lead to a situation where uh, again democratic democracy might backslide so if you analyze along these three lines there can be challenges to the democratic institutions people might question the legitimacy of these institutions right sir thank and uh, if you see a lot of the sort of a turmoil and the clash if i may use the word that has gripped the world in the past Seven or eight years is similar to what you have just said. That most of the the, the four factors that was spoken about that it is these four factors that lead to a robust democracy and a robust democracy ensure that these four uh, sort of factors are there in a society so that the society can progress and thrive. And if for you know if these two camps are sort of you know compromised, then we are in a big situation. And you know in India we were seeing a lot of this unraveling. So. As you said that, you know, economics is, is in disarray. I would go ahead and say that even our social fabric is is is, is in disarray uh, in the past seven or eight years. Uh, and uh, because of that, many Indian scholars have started talking and of course they have written a lot in the past seven, eight years about the backsliding of Indian democracy uh, and the hint of, of Indian democracy. So, so, so I think as, uh, you know, this is what uh, is written what situation for all of us, because as I said that, you know, a lot, uh, this lot of entropy in our society and our economics in India and, and I think, you know, globally, and a lot will depend on how these factors will sort of play, how these factors will interact with each other so that a robust democracy is ensured both in the world and in India. But that's the beauty and watch situations. And I'm very optimistic yeah. about it correctly pointed out Apoor so uh, thanks Apoor for joining us in this episode thanks to our listeners for tuning in we'll meet again in one more episode of All Things Policy If you liked our show don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network you can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts you can also follow IVM on social media the handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.